Vagrants. They wander from one place to another, seeking temporary employment, or resorting to a life of crime in order to survive in the world. The majority of vagrants go unnoticed by society. Walk down a populated city street, and you may come across a vagrant. Of course, you'd probably see through them or turn the other way. Many do. There's something about a homeless person that sends a cold shiver down the spine and the false belief that their cause for homelessness is contagious. Imagine the following. A vagrant walking along the same city street for days, stomach rumbling and the thought of robbing the next person plaguing them. They know they shouldn't steal, let alone hurt a person, but their hunger does not understand reason, and their attempts at begging for money have failed. Then, a generous human being comes across the vagrant. They offer them money so they can eat, and then they offer them an opportunity to make a lot more money if they're interested. All they have to do is deliver a package to a nearby warehouse and collect their money. The vagrant agrees and makes their way to the warehouse. They enter and never come out. This was one of many incidents involving vagrants that took place in a Brazilian city, and if not for a curious young woman who had the courage to see the vagrants, the atrocities taking place here may have gone unnoticed indefinitely. I'm Agent Kai, and I've decided to make my reports for Lyles in the form of a podcast. My hope is that you, dear listener, will discover the truth of this world and open your eyes to it. The clear blue sky and warm summer sun caused me to perspire as I sipped my coffee. Only the slow rotating ceiling fan of the cafe provided any relief from the heat. Harpia, a quaint little coffee shop located in El Centro de Virginia, was experiencing a steady stream of customers taking their pengalos and paono chapas to go. While I took another sip of my hot beverage, I examined the woman behind the counter. She was engaged with her customer in friendly banter, but she was also alert. To the layman, this woman was only speaking to her customer. However, in reality, she was keeping an observant eye on the stranger in her cafe, sipping a coffee on a hot morning. This told me this woman was cautious. She had approached me before and asked how my morning was going and if I'd like something to eat. I kindly declined her offer. That was 20 minutes ago. She was kind, but on guard. Truth be told, I had decided to delay my introduction because I needed to make sure this woman wasn't a conspiracy theorist spreading lies. Judging by her careful demeanor, I imagine she already knew who I was. Robert Walton, an investigator for the Human Guard, an international non-government organization that helps humanity through research and advocating human rights. This woman, Beatrice Santos had written multiple letters, sent various emails, and called several times to just about every human rights organization and got nowhere. Of course, these organizations sent their own investigators to check out Beatrice's attestations that vagrants in Virginia were disappearing without a trace, but none of these investigators could find any proof of Beatrice's claims. Some wrote her off as a nuisance bordering on anarchy. Exhausted with the fact no one would believe or help her, 
Beatrice turned to her local priest for advice. Her priest, an intelligencer for Laos, asked if she tried contacting the Human Guard, a relatively new organization devoted to helping those in need who were turned away by the world. She wasn't aware of this new organization and was thrilled when her email was returned saying that an investigator, Robert Walton, would head over to Virginia the next day and meet in her cafe. I was spending my holiday break between the undiscovered country, the Laos codename given to the Cemetery Isle of Fallen Agents, for my yearly visit to Agent Ash's grave, in Prague, where the winters are beautiful, especially when taking a stroll through Charles Bridge under the gas lamps. It was on this bridge that I got the call from Cameron informing me of this assignment. I boarded a flight to Virginia later that night. Beatrice had wrapped up her conversation with her customer. I finished my coffee and walked up to the counter. Obrigado pelo café, I said. Iwakredito que você sabe quem eu sou. Beatrice examined me. Você não parece um turista perdido. She smiled. Eu diria que você é Robert Walton. You're a perceptive one. I said. Not at all, Beatrice chuckled. <laughs> I just figured the only gringo in my shop at this hour in the morning must be a person who has business with me somehow. I smiled. Yes, I'm Robert Walton from the Human Guard. My apologies for not introducing myself earlier. I had to make sure you were legit. Of course you did, Beatrice said. I just hope you won't think I'm crazy like all the other investigators before you. Well... I'm not like all the other investigators before me. O tempo it. Beatrice made a fresh pot of coffee. We sat down at one of the tables out front under her cafe's awning. There we drank our coffee as Beatrice vented her frustration and disappointment and the other organizations that, to her, gave up on her case too fast. However, despite their hasty departure, Beatrice couldn't fault them much. She had no hard proof of anything. She knew that, but still, there was something happening to the vagrants, and someone was going to great lengths to cover it up. I know what I've seen, Beatrice said, sipping her pingado. I've followed the vagrants to the warehouse and seen what happens to them there. It all began with Beatrice's mother. Beatrice had grown up in the favela Hosinia. Beatrice's father left the family when she turned 12, leaving her mother to raise her and her unborn brother alone. Those were some dark times for Beatrice. Her mother began dating a man who introduced her to a destructive world. Finding food and water was a daily task for Beatrice. Oftentimes, She'd go without food for two or three days, and when she discovered her mother found more interest in smoking crack than working, Beatrice resorted to stealing to keep her stomach from hurting. She was not cut out to be a thief. She spent more time running away from people than actually eating what she could steal. It would have been easier, perhaps, Beatrice told me, if she had a brother to help her take on life. Therefore, she couldn't wait to meet her baby brother. On the 28th of December, 2000, her mother gave birth to her brother in their apartment bathroom. Beatrice had no idea her mother gave birth 
until she went to the toilet early that morning and found her brother in the bathtub. There was blood and fluid everywhere. Her brother, a tiny thing, lay motionless in that amniotic pool. Beatrice called for her mother, but she was too high to hear her cries. It was on that day that Beatrice decided to run away from home. She was better off alone than with her mother, who didn't care about the loss of her children, just cared about getting her next fix. Years went by, and Beatrice did well for herself after she discovered the library of a store owner she worked for. As she learned to read and became better at it, she read everything she could get her hands on. Her favorite reads were business books, which helped her establish her own business in Virginia at the young age of 22. She hated her mother for a long time. It took several books of psychology and philosophy to help her understand that her mother wasn't a crack addict. On the contrary, her real mother was somewhere under that drug user. And now that she was living well, she wanted to find her mother, if she was still alive, to see if she could help her, because in the end, Beatrice admitted she still loved her mother. It wasn't her mother who killed her brother. It was the monster that had taken her over that committed that atrocity. One night, while walking home, Beatrice passed up a vagrant on the street carrying a small package. This was a common sight, she told me, so she didn't pay much attention to the wanderer. She did, however, catch a glimpse of the person's face. The crescent-shaped scar on the right cheek didn't strike her until she got into bed and recalled that her mother had that same scar in the same spot. She ran back to the area where she'd seen the vagrant who may have been her mother but couldn't find her anywhere. For several nights afterwards, Beatrice spent time wandering the streets in the hopes of seeing her mother again. She came across many vagrants, had even asked them if they'd seen her mother. Some said that they have seen her at some point, but didn't know where she was. This continued for weeks. It wasn't until Beatrice started to notice that the vagrant population was decreasing that she decided to ask vagrants and denizens alike where all the vagrants were going off to. No one seemed to know, and worse, no one cared. Good. It sounds like someone is finally cleaning up the city. This comment came from one of Beatrice's customers. Another said, It's the devil. Those vagrants are being killed by the devil. And a final added, It's the creatures again. The ones from 96, they've come back. Not satisfied and concerned that something may have happened to her mother, Beatrice decided to follow one of the remaining vagrants. If no one was going to do anything, she told me, then she would have to step up. So, she decided to follow a vagrant throughout the day. Disguising herself as a homeless woman, she met with no suspicion from passers-by or police. No one cared to look at you, she told me, when you were a vagrant. She followed a man she named Scrap. He spent the majority of his day wandering from shop to shop begging for food. The rest of his day was spent asking passers-by for change or food. People either ignored Scrap or told him to get a job. This went on for a large portion of the day. Once night fell, Scrap was approached by a man dressed in an expensive suit. Beatrice couldn't hear what the suit told Scrap, but at the end of the conversation, the suit gave Scrap a small package and left. 
Scraps spent several minutes looking at the package, shaking it, and contemplating if he should open it. Finally, Scrap put the package in his tattered pocket and began walking away. Beatrice followed him to an abandoned warehouse just outside of the city. This was strange, Beatrice told me, because she never noticed this warehouse before. Nevertheless, she waited a couple of minutes before sneaking into the warehouse after Scrap threw a loose metal board on the side of the building. Inside, Beatrice took cover between two large containers that were placed on an aisle. She had no idea what was in them, but this position gave her a perfect view of Scrap. She could see that he was standing by the front door, waiting. Then, strange mechanical sounds reverberated throughout the warehouse. When the sounds stopped, two people wearing biohazard suits met Scrap. Beatrice pulled out her phone and started recording this encounter. The vagrant took out the package and offered it to the biosuits. They motioned him to open the package. Scrap did as he was told. The instant he opened the package, a plume of white smoke hit his face, causing him to hit the ground a few seconds after. The biosuits then dragged him away. Beatrice was going to follow them, but the sound of something roaring in the distance caused her to freeze. It was the roar of something that wasn't of this earth, she told me. Beatrice was consumed with fear. All she could think about at that moment was that she needed to get out of there. I ran out of that place, Beatrice said. I was afraid for my life. The roar that you heard, you sure it sounded otherworldly? Beatrice nodded. Yes, whatever made that sound, it was not of this world. I don't know what's going on, but whatever it is, something is happening in that warehouse, and it's not good. She paused and thought for a moment. I think they're killing the vagrants. Who do you think is killing the vagrants? I don't know, but someone is. You said you recorded the vagrant being approached by men in biohazard suits. Do you still have the footage? Beatrice shook her head. No. It, di it didn't save to my phone. It's weird. My phone isn't old, and I made sure it was recording. I stopped it correctly. At the time, my phone said the video was saved. But when I got home and tried to watch the video, I couldn't find it anywhere. I took a sip of my coffee. I see. I, I know I sound crazy, Mr. Walton, Beatrice said, but I assure you that I'm, I'm telling the truth. Someone is kidnapping vagrants from the street, the man in the suit. Did you see this man's face? Partially, she said. He's definitely gringo. Blonde hair. Tris, tris, dam demonio andando por la rua. A child, no older than 14, came running in shouting that a demon was walking the streets. Jose explained that on his way to school, he came across a five-foot-tall creature with a big head, brown skin, the feet of a bird, and large red eyes. The creature seemed injured, Jose informed us, because it was limping and emitting a low growling sound. Beatrice scolded the boy, saying that young men should not go around telling lies just to get out of school. However, Jose insisted that he was not lying. After convincing Beatrice 
that Jose may be telling the truth, she asked her cook to keep an eye on her cafe while she accompanied me and the boy. Jose took us to a deserted street on the outskirts of the city. There was nothing here except for an old brick wall with holes in it. Apparently, Jose had lied about going to school. He was playing hooky with some friends. The plan was to sneak in some beers and vape at an abandoned building. However, those plans were suspended the instant he and his friends came across the creature. While Beatrice yelled at Jose about the importance of going to school and getting an education, I sauntered over to where the creature had supposedly limped across. At first glance, there wasn't much here of interest, but upon closer inspection, this sight told a different story. There were smudged footprints of a three-limbed creature on the crabgrass that paralleled the damaged wall. The points implied a large bipedal creature, something akin to an ostrich or a kalanikin. On the road, which was blotted with mounds of dirt, lay fresh tire tracks. There were two vehicles here, and judging by the treads of the vehicles, one was military-grade tires, whereas the other seemed to belong to an SUV. These tracks told me that the military vehicle, a large truck by the looks of that vehicle's tire tread, came in from the north and stopped on a dime. The SUV came second and stopped a few feet behind the truck. The scoffed creature's footprints were elongated and brushed, especially those by the road, which told me it was captured and dragged onto the truck. The vehicles then proceeded south. The wind blew, kicking up some dirt and dried grass into the air. With it came the pungent smell of ammonia. Jose may have enjoyed telling lies to Beatrice, but he wasn't lying about this. He definitely saw something. Mr. Walton? Beatrice said. Is everything okay? He knows something was here. Yeah, Padre Jose. It's enough of your lies. Jose grunted. There was a creature here. He ran up to me. I'm serious, gringo. Jose, show some respect. He rolled his eyes. Mr. Walton, I swear I saw something. Un demonio. Jose turned to Beatrice. That monster is probably the source of the weird cries in the night. Weird cries in the night, I said. Beatrice sighed. There's been weird cries heard over the past couple of weeks in the night. Some say that a three decades old creature has returned, but if these idiots had any sense, they'd see that it's just the wind. The wind doesn't sound like that, Jose said. It was Elite de Virginia. Virginia, dear listener, wasn't just a city in Brazil. It was a place steeped in lore. During a severe rainstorm on the 20th of January, 1996, three women were walking home from a long day at work and decided to take a shortcut through some back streets. As they were crossing an abandoned section of a building that had been overtaken by crabgrass, they spotted a strange looking creature hobbling across a decadent wall. They claimed the creature was about five feet in height, with a large head, thin frame, bird-like feet, brown skin, and large red eyes. The women stood frozen in fear. They watched as the creature continued to hobble on its way, glancing back at them every now and then. At one point, 
One of the girls claimed the creature seemed to want to reach out to them. It even stopped and tried to limp its way to them. When this happened, the women, afraid out of their minds, ran away as fast as they could. When they returned home, two of the three women, sisters, told their mother that they had seen the devil. The mother, being a realist, scolded her daughters for telling such tall tales. However, her daughters insisted that they weren't lying. Perhaps it was the look of absolute fear in their eyes that convinced the hardened woman to go to the area where the girls said they saw the creature. The mother found a dog sniffing around and strange footprints when she got there. Word of these women's encounters spread throughout the city like wildfire. Soon, there was talk of UFO sightings above the city and on the outskirts. There were even reports that another strange creature was found lying on a road. But before any of the locals could do anything, military vehicles appeared and took the creature away. Ever since then, Virginia has become a tourist attraction for ufologists and spectators alike. This incident allowed some of the residents to make some money by creating memorabilia and selling it to tourists. Where do you think it went, gringo? I turned to Jose and said, Nowhere. There is no alien or devil. You must stop vaping. It's giving you and your friends hallucinations. And listen to Beatrice. You must stay in school. One of the greatest weapons anyone can have in this world is knowledge. Jose rolled his eyes. You're kidding, right? Where'd you find this guy, Tress? Listen to him, Beatrice said. Get back to school. Jose cursed under his breath and started walking away. I'll be checking in later to make sure you're there. Beatrice shook her head. Thank you for that, Mr. Walton. These kids nowadays will do anything to get out of school. I nodded and said I agreed. Sorry for wasting your time, Beatrice said. Not all, I smiled. This was an exciting adventure. After speaking about children and their wild imaginations for several minutes, I asked Beatrice if she could go over her story about the vagrant she followed again. I wasn't sure what was happening here, but there were a few things coming to mind and I needed to hear Beatrice's story once more in order to confirm my thoughts, and I needed to hear her story again to see if she was lying or telling the truth. You see, dear listener, when a person tells the truth about something they experienced, when they retell that story, they will add new details, details that reemerge from the depths of their memory. It's impossible to remember every detail in one retelling. However, when a story is told more than once, new details emerge. If a person is lying, then no new details will emerge. Just the same story told exactly the same every time. Over the course of the next few days, I had Beatrice tell me her tale five times. Each time she told it, a new detail would emerge like how the suit used humor to make the vagrant laugh, offered the vagrant a sip of his flask, and the fact the suit wore white gloves. I jotted down these details into my notebook and began to collect my thoughts and develop a plan of action. I also contacted Cameron to inform him of my status and the strange footprints in military vehicles. 
He said he would look into these details to see if any hits were found in the Laos database. During this time, I was staying in a guest room in Beatrice's apartment. She was kind enough to house me, and it was to her apartment that the supplies I ordered from the local intelligencers, again designed as Amazon packages, arrived. The supplies were discreet. Beatrice saw that I had ordered pens, airpods, a paint set, and clothes that seemed worn, for they were tattered and dirty. In reality, however, the supplies were more than met the eye. The pens were actually stun guns loaded with several micro darts filled with Nepenthe X, a drug that causes immediate unconsciousness and forgetfulness. Basically, disguised dream dusters. The AirPods were nose plugs called the Nosreg that allowed the user to breathe the oxygen from the Nosreg and close the nasal passage to prevent any toxins from entering the body. The paint set and the tattered clothes were just that. I made sure to conceal these devices into secret compartments of the tattered clothes before taking the paint set, which contained dark shades of grey, and applied it to my face, neck, and hands. Then I made my way to the area where Beatrice saw the vagrant that day. When I told Beatrice that I was going to go undercover to find out where the vagrants were being taken, she protested and said that that was a terrible idea, but she added that she was delighted to see an investigator that represented a human rights organization so devoted and proactive. However, she stood by her opinion that going undercover was foolish and dangerous. Therefore, she said, she would join me in this endeavor. I was impressed by her bravery, but I told her she would have to stay back and wait to hear from me. Of course, if things didn't go well and she hadn't heard from me in 48 hours, to contact the human guard and let them know what happened. Two days went by without incident. I had spent my days walking up and down the outskirts and the outer streets of the city. If I came across a person, I would stick out my hand and beg for some money. Some people spared a few centavos, others a couple of reais. But the majority of people I came across told me to find a job, find God, or do society and the world a favor and hang myself. During the nights, I found myself walking through some shanty towns made up of tents on the outskirts of Virginia. Here I spoke to several vagrants and asked them if they'd seen or knew anything about a man in an expensive suit wearing white gloves. Some vagrants offered some help, others were too busy getting high, and some were too sick to do anything. Those who did speak to me, however, said that they had seen a man that matched that description. Marsha Brenka, or White Death, was what they called the suit. He would appear out of nowhere, approach you, hand you a package, and then tell you to go to an abandoned warehouse where you disappeared. The exact details of what was said was unknown because no one here had ever been approached by the suit. I think those who took time to speak to me and offer them 500 hea each. On the third day, I called Beatrice to update her on my progress and to let her know that if I had no luck in coming across the suit today, I would have to change tactics. My next call was to Cameron to let him know that I was still at a loss as to what was happening around here. That I had a lead, but it was drying up. Keep looking into it, Kai, Cameron said. 
If there's something happening there, you'll find it. He paused. I ran a search on the Lyles database and found no matches on the footprint description you provided. Whatever that was, if it was anything, it's not native. As for the military vehicles, we do have some reports of some shady projects taking place in Brazil. But that's the same story with every military in the world. I thanked Cameron and went about my vagrancy. Later that night, as I counted the money I got from begging in the day, I was approached by the suit. He was faithful to the description provided by Beatrice and the vagrants. A sharp-dressed man who wore a three-piece Desmond Marion, handcrafted bespoke suit with slick back blonde hair and white gloves. Salutations, my weary friend, he said, examining me. You're not from here. Perdón, señor, I said, pero no te entiendo mucho. The suit smiled. Ah, español. Then donde eres? De Colombia. Muy bien. Cuénteme, Colombia. Sables hablar inglés? I nodded. Um, sí, a little English. Excelente. He offered his hand. My name is San and I may be able to help you. Sand asked me for my name. I told him Christian, and how I ended up a vagrant in Brazil, too much alcohol and bad decisions. After a lengthy conversation about the pitfalls of life and multiple offerings of cigarettes, vape pens, and a swig of his bourbon, Sand offered me a chance to obtain some money, over 500,000, should I be interested. I said I was, and he handed me a small package. I was to deliver the package to a person in a nearby warehouse who would then pay me. Once Sand finished his instructions, he walked away, whistling Chopin's Nocturne in C-sharp minor. The warehouse turned out to be a large, abandoned building filled with metal containers collecting rust. Nature was also doing its best to take the place back. Without any doors and missing walls, moss and vines and crabgrass were able to creep into the interior. The place was illuminated by the large orange lights hanging from the ceiling. It was these lights that allowed me to see the false floor of the warehouse. I was told by sand to walk to the middle of the warehouse and wait. I did so. In the middle was some kind of trap door. It didn't take long for the loud whirring of mechanical gears to reverberate throughout the place. Before I knew it, the false floor opened up. Two men in biohazard suits appeared from this opening. They were standing inside a caged elevator. The metal door screeched open. So, ¿Son ustedes las personas que les doy el paquete? I said. ¿Cuándo recibo mi dinero? The biohazard suits told me to open the package in English. I did so. The instant I opened the package, a thick plume of smoke engulfed my face. Within seconds, I started to wobble, followed by falling onto the ground. Of course, this was all an act on my part. Thanks to the Nosreg, I was able to bypass the knockout gas. Feigning unconsciousness, 
The biohazard suits grabbed me by my arms and began to drag me toward the caged elevator. They stopped halfway when a loud thump echoed throughout the warehouse. That's when one of my captors told the other to go check out the noise while he continued to drag me into the elevator. Once I was inside, he pulled the lever that caused the elevator to descend while he went over to help his colleague who had yelled out for help. The caged elevator took me down several miles beneath the ground. When it stopped, I could see that I was in some kind of subterranean facility, and judging from the fluorescent lights and clean white linoleum floor, this place was founded by a wealthy organization. I thought about getting up and exiting the elevator, but decided against it when I heard two men walking toward me. Once again, pretending to be unconscious, these men grabbed me by my arms and dragged me somewhere down the lit hallway. Unlike my previous captors, these two enjoyed talking. Geez, another vagrant, one said. It's unbelievable how many of these losers there are up there. The other chuckled and said, yeah, such a waste of life. Luckily, San and his team will put those dirty sons of bitches to better use. The men stopped. They pressed some buttons and a door opened. Before they could throw me into the room, I flipped my wrist, causing the concealed pen to shoot into my hand. Then, I shot both men in the legs with an Apenthe axe. Within seconds, both men joined me on the ground. I stood up and dragged them into the room, which reminded me of an old-fashioned padded asylum. I then played back the sound of the buttons to cause the door to close and lock. I wandered around the halls for a bit, passing up dozens of similar rooms containing homeless asleep on the floor. Then I came to a fork in the hall with a sign that read, Left, Chimera Housing, Right, Laboratories. Fearing the worst, I decided to go left first. This direction brought me to a similar hallway, except instead of padded rooms, there were habitat displays similar to those in museums that displayed animals from different periods of time. The difference here was that instead of animals on display, it was creatures, or rather actual chimeras. Judging by the fact that these creatures didn't seem to notice me, I assumed there were two-way mirrors instead of regular glass. Each display had a small plaque with the word trial and a number following it. Make no mistake, dear listener. Chimeras are real. In biology, an individual with a fusion of cells from two or more genetically distinct individuals of the same species forms a human chimera. This happens often during childbirth. Mother and child will have a fusion of their cells within each of their bodies. However, the chimera that most are familiar with is the one from Greek mythology. This chimera was normally depicted as being a lion with the head of a goat sticking out of its back and a tail that ends with a snake's head. In Greek mythology, this creature was killed by the hero Bellerophon with the aid of Pegasus. And now, it would seem, some mad scientist had created living, breathing chimeras. As I made my way down the lengthy hall, I came across the creature that Jose must have seen before. The creature was approximately five feet in height, brown skin, 
red eyes, and the foot of a bird. It was crouched down in the far corner, making a weeping-like noise. It also seemed to be bleeding on its side, and looking carefully, I could see old scars on its skin. The plaque on the mirror for this creature read, Trial 95, Eagle, Alligator, Man. Across the hall from the five-foot creature was another much bigger creature, approximately six and a half feet in height. This one had a hunched round body with an elongated human-like head. It had long red hair that ran down its shoulders. Its face was stretched with an uncanny smile and large black eyes. In truth, this chimera reminded me of some kind of titan from Attack on Titan. It turned its massive head toward me. Slowly, it got up. Then it started waddling toward the two-way mirror. While it appeared to move slow, it was actually faster than it seemed. Before I knew it, it was right in front of me. It looked at me with that twisted smile and expressionless eyes. Then it started howling and banging on the mirror. The plaque here read, Trial 83, Sloth, Orangutan, Woman. I took a few steps back and returned to the fork in the hall. The howling of Trial 83 echoed through the corridor. From here, I made my way toward the section of the underground facility labeled laboratories. This was another hallway that led to three doors. Each one was labeled. The one to my left side, specimens. The one to my right said, OR. And the one directly in front of me said, disposal. I opened the OR door because it was the only one with a green light. The others had red and were locked. The OR door revealed a large room with a towering platform and two guards. They aimed their guns at me, but before they could utter a word, I injected them with an Apenthe X darts. They were out cold within seconds. I dragged the guards close to the platform in the middle of the large room, where they would be hidden from sight. Before leaving, however, I decided to switch up my disguise. One of the guards was about my height and weight. Therefore, I ditched my vagrant wear and equipped the guard's uniform. Slowly. I made my way up the spiraling staircase that seemed to ascend for miles. When I got close to the top, I could hear people talking. I crouched down and continued up those final steps until I could peek my head over the platform. There were several people in lab coats with clipboards taking notes. Around and above them were large monitors displaying various vital signs. Among the lab coats and monitors was sand, white gloves and all. Look at that, Sand said. Same blood type and genetic markers as that woman from a few weeks ago. He lit a cigarette and inhaled. <sighs> they must be related. Or maybe they're all just the same. One of the lab coats told him he shouldn't be smoking in the laboratory. Sand said nothing, only blew smoke into the lab coat's face, causing the man to cough. <coughs> Load up the system. I'm curious to see what this beauty will look like with scales and fur. Sand walked toward the opposite end of the platform and disappeared down another set of stairs. The lab coats went about their business as well, walking over to various monitors and typing away. Now that they all separated, 
The object of their attention was in full view, Beatrice. She was stripped naked and tied down to a long metallic table, mechanical cables plugged into her head, arms, sides, and legs. An alarm began blaring. On either side of Beatrice's table rose two similar tables, each containing a strapped-down animal. To the right was an anaconda, to the left was a spectacled bear. Both animals seemed to be heavily sedated, and each animal also had mechanical cables plugged into their bodies. It didn't take a genius to figure out what they were planning on doing to Beatrice. They were going to turn her into a chimera. Another trial. There were five lab coats in total. My stun gun only had four darts left. Reflexively, I made my way onto the platform and used the darts on the four lab coats. The fifth, I rushed and knocked them out with a quick punch. Then I ran over to Beatrice. She was groggy, so I had to tap her lightly on the face to get her attention. When her eyes focused on me, she smiled for a second and then grimaced when she realized what was happening. Walton, what's, what's going on? I... Beatrice groaned and glanced at her body. Oh, oh my god, what is this? After I had explained that Sand was abducting vagrants and turning them into chimeras, Beatrice vomited. She said she couldn't believe this was actually happening, that things like this only happen in books and movies, not in real life. I used one of the white coats to wipe the bile off of her. When she calmed down, she told me that she had been following me to make sure I was okay. But when she was in the warehouse above ground, she accidentally dropped her phone, which bounced and hit one of the containers. Before she knew it, one of the biohazard suits had grabbed hold of her and drugged her with something. Please, Mr. Walton, you have to get me out of here, Beatrice said, trying to rip out one of the mechanical cables from her arm. I wouldn't pull that out if I were you, Sand said. Each one of those cables has been connected to your nerves. Pulling it out will hurt like a new kind of hell. Beatrice looked at me, tears running down her eyes. Mr. Walton, please. It's going to be alright, Beatrice, I said. I'm here with you now. I won't let anything happen to you. How touching. Even now you still have hope. Sand chuckled. <laughs> Funny thing about hope is that it always fades. What kind of twisted operation are you running here? I said. Oh, not me. This operation has been running for ages. Sand took out a cigarette and lit it. I only oversee it from time to time. What do you do with the chimeras? Sand gave me a smirk. Oh my. You're an inquisitive one, aren't you? He took a hit from his cigarette. Well, you'd be surprised how much money governments would dish out for one of these chimeras. Sand chuckled. Every country needs a grotesque creature from time to time to carry out dirty work. Using people for the sole people, Sand interjected. You mean vagrants, the homeless. These aren't people, but rather the garbage of the world. No one notices, nor do they care, if a vagrant vanishes. In a sense, it's a quid pro quo. The vagrants offer their bodies 
in the name of science and governments get their monsters. Everyone is happy. Except these people aren't volunteering to be experimented on. You took the package, did you not? All the chimeras in this facility were offered the promise of money. And you damn well better believe we keep our promises. The thing is, none of the chimeras seem to want the money afterwards. Sand guffled. <laughs> oh my, it gets me every time. You're despicable, I said. Sand grinned from ear to ear. Humanity is despicable. You think turning vagrants into chimeras is loathsome. I'm sure your organization is quite aware of what this world's puppet masters are doing. One species killing itself. Infectious hate. If you ask me, humanity is despicable. You speak about a few, not all of humanity. I turned to Beatrice. This woman went out of her way to try and find out what was causing the homeless to vanish. She didn't have to do that, but she did. This woman shares genetics with another woman we experimented on, Sand said. Her motive for helping the vagrants was strictly out of self-interest. Had she never discovered her family member, she wouldn't have cared about the vagrants. Self-interest or not, she tried. Now let her go. Sand shook his head. That's not going to happen, I'm afraid. Even if I did let her go, pulling on those cables would cause so much pain, she would die from it. He paused and took a hit of his cigarette. But I can turn her into chimera for you. I gave Sand a hard look. Always the serious one, aren't you? Sand flicked a cigarette onto the ground. He was right about you. You are different from the others. To whom are you referring? I believe you refer to him as the Gentleman Unknown. How do you know him? I have the honor of working for him. Who or what is he? Sand laughed. <laughs> Oh no, you're not getting any answers out of me. You'll have to earn those, if you survive, that is. Sand pulled out a small remote and pressed the button. This caused the mechanical voice to say, self-destruction sequence activated. 20 minutes to complete self-destruction. I'll see you around, Agent Kai, Sand said, walking toward the stairs. Or maybe not. I wanted to go after Sand to subdue and interrogate him, but I couldn't leave Beatrice alone. I walked up to her and said that we had to try to pull out the cables despite Sand's warning. Beatrice agreed. She added that he could have been lying too. For her sake, I hope he was. However, as it turned out, he wasn't. We managed to pull out the cables, the one in her left arm, and green fluid burst everywhere from the needlehead of the cable. This caused Beatrice to scream something fierce. Then she told me, through shallow breaths, that she couldn't move her arm. Okay, I said. Give me a moment to think of something here. As Beatrice cried in pain, 
I thought of a way to get her out of here safe and alive. An opening in the floor across from us appeared. It was another elevator, but instead of raising a table, it raised trial 83, the chimera consisting of a sloth, an orangutan, and a woman. Fifteen minutes to total destruction. The chimera under the laboratory's lights reminded me of something out of the film The Hills Have Eyes, for this chimera had a large head, robust body full of fur, and massive arms. Its face, while large and elongated, still retained a semblance of humanity as it didn't have any fur. It did, however, have a crescent-shaped scar on its cheek, specifically the right cheek. And that's when it hit me. Trial 83 was Beatrice's mother. I turned to Beatrice and followed the cables that were plugged into her all the way to where they stemmed from. Each of the mechanical cables originated from one of the many monitors surrounding the tables. There were valves running through the thick cables, which I assumed were used to connect the animals to Beatrice. My plan was to unhook the valves, connecting the cables to the monitors, and carry Beatrice out of here, cables attached. I ran over to the first cable, the one plugged into her side, and began unhooking the valve. However, as the cable came loose, Beatrice started screaming. It seemed that whatever the green fluid was, it had bonded with Beatrice's nervous system. Removing the cables on my end would kill her. I glanced over my shoulder. The chimera was hobbling its way toward us. Walton, Beatrice said. Get out of here. Leave me. No, I'll figure a way to get you out of here. Beatrice groaned. It's, it's too late for me. Save yourself. The chimera was now upon us. It swung its left arm toward me. I had to jump out of the way to avoid its grasp. Trial 83 looked at me. Then, in a grating voice, it said, Kill me. I ran across the platform and tried calling the chimera over to me. And it seemed to work for a second, but that didn't pan out. When I looked over at Beatrice, who was still groaning in pain, the chimera reached its giant hand at her face. Ten minutes to total destruction. The chimera dropped to its knees and started sobbing. With roughly ten minutes to go before the whole underground facility self-destructed, I had to make a difficult decision. Seeing as how I couldn't remove the cables from Beatrice without killing her, I decided she was right. My only option was to leave her and get out of there. Therefore, with a heavy heart, I left Beatrice in the chimera that was once her mother alone to perish. I had to hightail my way back down the stairs, through the long hallways, and into the elevator that brought me down here. When I passed by the hallways, I couldn't help but notice that, whether it was sand or someone else, the vagrants that were trapped in those asylum-like prisons were killed execution style. When I reached the world above once more, I had only five minutes before the underground facility exploded. I ran as fast and as far as I could from that place. In the end, I had to take cover behind a large military truck when the underground facility erupted in an earthquake followed by a massive fire that consumed the warehouse.
In the days that followed, news reports about the warehouse fire consumed the Brazilian airwaves. It was reported that vagrants who had taken refuge in this warehouse started a dumpster fire that got out of control and devoured the warehouse and all vagrants involved. Only the remains of charred bones and pieces of clothing were found on the site when firefighters arrived to put out the flames. Beatrice Santos was reported as missing by Jose and other friends and family. Since no one knew that Robert Walton was staying with Beatrice for a few days, Walton was left out of everyone's report. However, because Beatrice was known to have taken an interest in the vagrants of the city, many believed she was murdered by some vagrant. Others, who were more of the supernatural persuasion, believed that Beatrice was attacked by a devil and taken to hell. This agent barely made it out alive. The explosion sent this agent flying several feet through the air, landing hard on an old fence which caused injury to the lower abdomen. However, despite the injury which was treated by local intelligencers, the pain of leaving Beatrice and all those other vagrants behind in that underground facility was greater. The suit, known as Sand, was nowhere to be found. He left no trace or clue as to where he had run off to. But his presence and his knowledge of this agent and Laios and his association with the gentleman unknown was enough to convince Patrice Landless that an investigation into the gentleman unknown was warranted. This agent has received official word from Landless to pursue any leads on the gentleman unknown. Oftentimes, many of us forget the things that matter in life, like humanity. With so many giant companies at the helm of the world spewing out their ideologies, Many of us get brainwashed into thinking that the only thing to do in life is act cool by ingesting the latest drug and acting like we are the toughest thing that ever walked this earth. In small doses, certain drugs can be beneficial to humanity medically. However, in the large doses that many consume these drugs like crack, heroin, nicotine, it only causes addiction and drags down the person to a non-human level. And this is so because the majority of the world is programmed to view those who suffer from addiction as such. Many vagrants like Beatrice's mother end up so because they cannot control themselves. This is not to say that they have no willpower. On the contrary, these people have been sabotaged by a drug designed to ruin them and fill the pockets of the drug lords who profit from misery and death. And oftentimes, these drug lords are the ones in high places. Daniel Defoe's 1721 novel, Mull Flanders, a book about a prostitute trying to survive in a harsh world, raises a question that has gone unanswered to this day. Is there no conflict between fattening your purse and saving your soul? It would seem that there isn't. Too many people like Beatrice's mother are consumed by highly addictive drugs every day. And before any of us can pass judgment on these poor souls, it is important to remember that they did not start out this way. Influences in their lives and environment led to this path. And the more people consume these drugs, the more those in power profit. When Sand said that vagrants, the homeless, aren't people but rather society's trash, he wasn't just spewing out his own opinion. 
he was echoing the thoughts of many, far too many. It is devastating to think that so few care to help those in need. And the few who do care are sometimes met with hostility from those they try to help to those in power. This agent cannot fathom what future this world has if the apex species prefers to kill itself rather than help itself survive. Sand may have been supervising an operation to turn vagrants into chimeras, but many of us who see vagrants and the like and say it's not our concern are doing the same thing.